Friends, our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, the second chapter, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of God. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's been written by the prophets. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may go also and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, today we... Celebrate Epiphany. It's the end of our celebration of the 12-day season of Christmas that starts on December 25th and then lasts for 12 days. And if you've counted on your calendars, you'll realize that tomorrow, January 6th, is actually uh, the end of the season. It's the, uh, the day of Epiphany itself is January 6th. But we have a tradition in the Methodist Church of, of um, Moving that feast, it's called translating the feast, but moving the celebration to the close Sunday. And part of that is because we've realized it's hard to get people back to church on a Monday evening to celebrate it. But, uh, but part of it is to make sure that the whole worshiping family is able to be together to celebrate this important day in the life of the church's worshiping year, this Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany is when we commemorate this event, we read about in Matthew's Gospel of the wise men, the magi, another word for wise men, so I'll probably slip in and out of using the two. But the wise men coming and arriving at Bethlehem to worship Jesus. They saw the star from the east and they followed the star and it landed at Bethlehem where they paid homage, they worshipped Jesus. And we celebrate this day and commemorate this day because it marks the revelation of Jesus to the entire world. If we were to place this event in its more immediate social, um, historical context, we would see that Jesus is the Messiah. He's understood to be the Messiah. Matthew writes about him as Messiah. But he was a Messiah of a very particular sort, or at least that's what people thought. If you were to ask the average person that was looking for the Messiah, for the Savior at the time of Jesus, and on into his ministry, even the disciples at times seemed not to understand just the type of Messiah he was, just exactly what type of Savior he was. Make no mistake, at the time of Jesus' birth, people were looking for a Messiah, 
We see that when the wise men get to Herod and ask him, where is born the king of the Jews? That ought to be a, a hint to us what kind of Messiah people were looking for. The Jewish people, and particularly around Jerusalem, were under Roman oppression. They were suffering. And they were looking for a savior. But they weren't necessarily thinking about someone who would come and be exactly the kind of savior Jesus was. They wanted a savior to drive out the Romans and to begin again the, a monarchy like King David's that they would live under, where they could live freely and independently. When they thought Messiah, that's what they were talking about. And here, at the very beginning of Jesus' life, Matthew lets us know that's not the kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be. Yes, he's the Messiah who's been prophesied. Yes, he is the one for whom the world has had its hope. Yes, he's the one that the Jewish prophets foretold. But he's going to be different than people's expectations. Because we see here in the story of the wise men that Jesus is the Savior not of a particular group, of a particular nation, but of the entire world, of the entire human race. We see that in the fact that the wise men were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish at all. And that ought to let us know that something's going on here. Why would three Gentile people come to worship a, a Savior who was so specifically and particularly for the Jewish people? No, he was God worked through the history of his people to bring this to be that Jesus would be born to be the Savior of all, the Messiah of all for the whole world, for all of humanity. We see that, as I said, and the wise men being Gentiles, and the wise men worshiping him. Now, you'll notice, nowhere does Matthew say there were three wise men. But every nativity scene you'll ever see has three wise men in it. We just sang a hymn about three wise men, and in a minute we're going to sing another one about three wise men. But the use of that number is so important when we think about the, the meaning of here, Matthew is telling us about the universal nature of Jesus' Messiahship. Nowhere are we told that there are three, and nowhere are we told the races or ethnicity of the wise men. We're told they came from the east, but, um, you know, all that means is they were from east of wherever Jerusalem was. We assume they think they probably came from Persia, but the tradition nevertheless emerged that one of the wise men was of African descent, one of Asian descent, and one of European descent, because in a world that, uh, where people had not moved around it as much, and people in this part of the world didn't know there was another part of the world, and vice versa, the ancients would have thought if you had those three, you had represented symbolically the entire human race. Those are the three kinds of people they thought there were. Of course, we know there's a lot more than that, and you can't just boil people down to the color of their skin, yet... The metaphor here works that the idea is such that the three magi represent, in their diversity, they represent all of humanity. They represent you and me. They represent everyone who ever lived or ever will live. They stand in for you and for me telling us here and now that Jesus is the Savior for everyone. 
Whether we like it or not, whether we like them or not, Jesus was born for all. Herod's hostility and acts of evil show us that the gospel continues to generate opposition and enemies. And that this good news is everyone that everyone is loved through Jesus, that Jesus was born for all, still generates hostility and opposition. It did then, and it does now. With its Gentile magi, the epiphany emphasizes for us and reminds us of this radically universal nature of Jesus' saving work, that he was born for everyone, that he lived for everyone, that he died for everyone, that he rose again for everyone. And that is good news, and it's good news we shouldn't keep to ourselves. I'll lighten things up a little bit. Some of you know and heard me talk about a special place to me, Metkin Abbey uh, in Monk's Corner. Metkin Abbey is a Trappist monastery, a Catholic monastery uh, outside of Monk's Corner. Just so you know, it was called Monk's Corner before there was a monastery there, which I find interesting. I'm convinced that when the monks were trying to find a place to put a new monastery and they saw a town called Monk's Corner, they went, we got to put it there. <laughs> I don't know. However they found it, it's there. And years ago, I started going to Medkin Abbey, to, usually at the beginning of the year for a time of personal retreat. Um, I would just kind of go, and, and the monks at, Tra- at Medkin Trappist monks are not a silent order, but they're real close. If you want to have deep conversations, you should go somewhere else. But uh, the food is austere. Most of the time you talk will be in worship or singing or praying aloud. But that solitude, that quietness, and also the scenery, it's beautiful. It's on the, on the Cooper River right before you get to the first lock on the Santee Lakes. It's on thousands of acres of old rice fields. You can walk in the woods and, and be alone, and it, it's beautiful. And I, I love it in winter when it's a little dreary, a little windy coming off the river. It's wonderful. But something happened. When I started going, the, the accommodations were dry and safe and nice, but a little dated for guests who were there for retreat for limited for, you know, days. They were, like I said, they were wonderful, but they were a little dated. And the monks need a way, like everybody else, for their ministry to continue. They need material resources to do that. And one of the main ways they did that was through people coming there to stay for a period of spiritual rest and renewal. And so they built a new guest house which is a fancy monk word for small hotel. And it really is wonderful. It's a beautiful space. And, and it's one anyone would go stay in. It's, it's, it was so wonderful that the Charleston Post and Courier went up there and wrote a story about it. And that story was so well written that the Associated Press picked it up and ran an article about it. And, of course, Charleston TV stations started doing stories about it because it was kind of a bug, this new thing. They were known for people who'd go there for the day to see the fresh exhibits or uh, to buy their fresh produce. But now they, they really were playing up in different media sources the retreat aspect of it. And then, all of a sudden, this place I'd been going for a decade didn't have a reservation for me, at least at the time I wanted it. And my first thought was not, I'm so happy that the monks have been able to 
used this valuable resource to further their ministry, my first thought was, who are all these people taking my spot? That's my spot. They're sleeping in my room the week I was going to be there. And, and they're going to eat the food I was going to eat. And they're going to have the experience I was going to have. Me, me, me. I, I, I. And of course, while I'm in the midst of my complaining, I had a moment of spiritual conviction. If it is that powerful an experience, I have no business keeping it to myself. It should be something I want lots of other people to enjoy, right? It's kind of like being a Braves fan. I'm a lifelong Braves fan. Braves fans suffered through the 80s. And then in the 90s, when the Braves got good, I started asking myself, where did all these people come from? But shouldn't I be happy that my team was doing well and that other people wanted to celebrate? Well, you've had experiences like that. We, we, we might not intentionally do that when it comes to our faith, but I think sometimes if we're not careful, we can do that. Jesus was born for the entire human race. And because Jesus was born for the entire human race, we are called to share that good news. We are called to share that good news even if people around us don't want to hear it because they need to hear it. We're called to make our faith, it's supposed to be personal, but it's not supposed to be private. To, to get it out there with our words when the opportunity arises, to get it out there with our deeds when the opportunity arises. But our call, our call is to reflect to the world the lesson taught to us when the Magi knelt and worshipped the child Jesus. That this Jesus brings good news for everyone. For everyone. And it's our job as we kneel and worship before that same Jesus to take that good news that the love of God is for everyone. And we're called to be agents of that and to help other people hear it and to help other people know it. That's our job as individuals. That's our job as church. We pray with Almighty God, you've called us to a sacred and holy task. Lord, we thank you again for the gift of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, as we come before you this morning in worship, may we recognize the presence of Christ with us and among us. And Lord, as we take this holy meal of communion, may you so fill us with your grace that we leave this place to take the good news a world that so desperately needs it. Lord, we ask it all in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.